Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. With the recent passing of NDP leader Jack Layton, we'll be speaking to political observers Sam Gindon, Libby Davies, Judy Rebick, and Murray Dobbin on Mr. Layton's impact on the NDP and on the Canadian left generally. And we'll also speak with Simon Tremblay-Pépin about the particular impact of the NDP's breakthrough in Quebec and what may lay ahead. And we'll speak with Kevin Whitaker, who is speaking about the non-academic strike at McGill University. First, the alert headlines for the week of September 8th, 2011. Author Naomi Klein and Canadian actresses Margot Kidder and Tantu Cardinal were among the over 1,200 environmental activists arrested during a two-week sit-in at the White House to protest plans for TransCanada's 2,700-kilometer Keystone XL pipeline. Ever since the climate talks collapsed in Copenhagen, there's been more and more talk that nonviolent civil disobedience is going to have to be really resurrected as a mass tactic, Klein told the Globe and Mail. Klein also said there is a quote-unquote tremendous sense of urgency with the issue. The pipeline must receive presidential permit before being built, and it is the hope of protesters that Obama deems the pipeline not in the national interest. Unions are at risk of losing their special voting rights as federal NDP leadership conventions. This possibility has caused a division between two senior party officials who are believed to be the top contenders to replace the late Jack Layton as party leader. While party president Brian Topp supports maintaining the historic relationship between Labour and the NDP, Quebec MP Thomas Mulcair wants to terminate guaranteed voting rights for unions. There may be a decision as early as this Friday when the NDP Federal Council meets to further discuss this issue. Currently, 25% of the vote is reserved for unions affiliated with the party. Gilles Réaume, a Quebec activist, has filed a human rights complaint against Angelo Persicilli, the new communications director for the Conservative Party of Canada, because he cannot speak French. Réaume argues that the rights of francophone journalists are violated when they cannot communicate with senior officials in the Prime Minister's office in Canada's second official language. Persicilli came to Canada from Italy in 1975, has been active in the ethnic media, and is editor of the Italian newspaper Corriere Canadese. Most recently, he has been columnist with the Toronto Star. Colombian peasant organizations and indigenous groups gathered in August to demand an active role in shaping policies meant to end the long history of armed violence in the country. In response to the escalating attacks on civilians, over 20,000 people attended a weekend-long Gathering for Peace and Land organized by the Regional Indigenous Council on COCA, or the CRIC. Demonstrators opposed military responses and exploitative economic policies as the way to relieve social tensions. The demonstrations occurred just as Canada's free trade agreement with Colombia came into effect. Prime Minister Harper dismisses critics of the agreement, saying citing Colombia's poor human rights record is merely a front for protectionist politics meant to halt the progress of the country. Those were the alert headlines for the week of September 8, 2011.
Now for Around the Left for the week of September 8, 2011. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East invite you to join the Boycott Israel campaign to pressure Israel to respect human rights and cease its occupation of Palestinian land. Each month, the campaign focuses on one consumer target and one cultural target. For September 2011, the campaign is targeting Canadian Tire, which sells products from a company that manufactures some products in illegal Israeli colonies, and the Swedish music duo Roxette, who are performing in Tel Aviv in October. To vi- find out more, visit cjpme.org. Toronto Stop the Cuts is calling for a mass meeting on September 10th from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock p.m. Come out to Dufferin Grove Park and lay out a people's declaration, a clear set of demands to deliver to City Hall. Then, on September 26th at 5.30 p.m., show up at City Hall for the Rally for Toronto to make sure those demands are met when Council votes on the future of the city. For more information, check out www.torontostopthecuts.com or laborcouncil.ca. The Manitoba provincial election is coming up October 4th. In Winnipeg, come to the Provincial Environment Forum on September 14th from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. at the First Unitarian Universalist Church on Wellington Crescent. Moderated by CBC Radio's Terry McLeod, come hear all the platforms and ask questions. Put the environment on the agenda this election. On September 15th in Montreal, come to Standing Up to State Intimidation and Criminalization, a campaign of community solidarity and non-collaboration with CSIS. Beginning at 6 o'clock p.m. at the Georges Vanier Cultural Center, there will be a free light dinner with vegetarian and halal options, a panel and discussion. For more information, search Community Solidarity Against CSIS on Facebook to find the event page. In Vancouver, on Saturday, September 17th, join the Downtown Eastside Women's Center Power of Women group in the 5th Annual March for Women's Housing and March Against Poverty. Meet at 1.30 p.m. at Cordova and Columbia. March for social housing, child care, and health care for all for an end to evictions and gentrification in the downtown east side and for an end to the criminalization of the poor. All genders are welcome and celebrated. The march is child-friendly and there will be a rest vehicle for elders. For more information, email project at dewc.ca. Also in Vancouver on Saturday, September 17th at 4 o'clock p.m. after the march, come to the downtown Eastside block party to block condos on the 100 block. Enjoy music, food, and the last bit of summer sun while you protest the condo development at the old Pantages site. The downtown Eastside is not for developers to make millions. It is for our vibrant and vital low-income community. For more information, check out... DTESNotForDevelopers.wordpress.com Do you believe that community-based planning is vital for neighborhood design? On Saturday, September 17th, come to the Toronto City Builders Camp and explore how communities are taking charge of city building in their neighborhoods. This event takes place from 9.15am to 2.30pm at the Urban Space Gallery. It is a free event, but attendees must pre-register at torontocitybuilderscamp.eventbrite.com as space is limited. For more information, please contact aslam at cityecology.net.
uh, alert has now reached uh, Marie Dobbin. He is a, um, a writer, political commentator, and social activist. Uh, Marie Dobbin, would you care to share with us uh, your thoughts? Uh, first of all, how, how did the NDP, in your view, change under Jack Layton's leadership? Well, I mean, I think uh, you know, I, I think it's hard to, to to comment on that without commenting about about Jack Layton himself. I mean, I think <clears throat> I think Layton was uh, was extraordinary in the sense that he, you know, as so many people have said, uh, and I, you know, I don't want to repeat all of it, but I mean, he he connected with people at a level that most politicians don't. And what struck me about Layton was that I think he actually liked people, <clears throat> and I don't think many politicians on the national they certainly the the leadership um, actually uh, like people particularly certainly true of Harper and and, and Ignatieff a very very elitist um, and and you felt with Jack that he he actually got it I mean, and um, uh, and connected with people at a <clears throat> at a personal level um, my dealings with him which were occasional uh, and I, I was often very critical of him um, were still very um, uh, congenial and friendly he never took criticism personally and he was uh, he was able to discuss these things really uh, really openly um, but I think the you know uh, uh, during the time that Layton was leader and you, you you can't you can't um, lay everything at, at the door of the leader um, positive or negative because obviously uh, it's a party and he has advisors and people around him but it seems to me that um, a couple of things happened under under Layton. One was that the party moved closer to the center, and I think uh, a lot of people were were upset by the fact that that the party um, basically supported uh, quite large increases in defense spending without a whole lot of critical comment. Um, and there was support for, although not blanket support, but broadly supportive of of the of the crime agenda of of um, of Harper, uh, and I think on the economic issues, uh, I think there was disappointment there that that the NDP, uh, and of course this has been true historically, the NDP didn't respond to uh, probably its biggest opportunity in decades to to criticize neoliberalism and uh, sort of unregulated capitalism with the with the economic crisis, uh, which it could have done, I think, and and really made some headway. And lastly, and connected to that is the whole deficit financing of of the Harper government, which of course was a, a manufactured crisis you know, created by tax cuts, and the reluctance of the NDP to to really go after the tax issue and say, you know, rich people have to pay their share and corporations have to pay their share, and so I think those sorts of things moved the party uh, towards the center and and you know towards the the Liberal Party, um, which of course uh, I think the NDP under Layton was you know was intent on replacing the Liberals, and I think they they, they meant that. Um, and I, you know, and there's always the the danger of, of if you're going to replace a party, you have to become more like them. And I think that to some extent that's what happened. The second thing that uh, that I think uh, happened, and I think this was irresistible for the NDP, was that they 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 relied a great deal on on Jack, the leader, um, Le Bon Jack in in um, uh, in Quebec. And uh, I mean, Jack was an incredibly attractive personality, and uh, and and people liked him. And so I think the NDP um, it was very hard for the NDP to resist uh, playing to that, and I think that they came to rely on 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 Jack's leadership, um, not so much as a voice of of, um, of social democracy, although it was that, 
but more just the voice of Jack himself and and his personal connections with people. So I'd say that you know those are the the two <coughs> most important um, trends under under the you know during the period that Jack was uh, Jack was leader. Given that reshaping of the NDP under his uh, watch, what would you then estimate would be his impact on on our national politics and and the cause of the left generally well i mean it's it's hard to it's hard to answer that without trying to talk about the larger context and i think the larger context is that the extra parliamentary left has is at its weakest period in certainly in the 40 years that i've been involved i'd say the last you know the last 10 years has seen a, a really you know quite a dramatic decline in the impact of of, of social movement politics in Canada, um, uh, and the labor movement uh, is virtually absent. Uh, you know, which I think is the labor movement has a lot to answer for in terms of it, the role it's played over the last ten years. It's it's been almost invisible uh, in, in terms of, of of trying to come to grips with the onslaught of of the Harper Conservatives, and so the context in which the NDP has operated in the last you know in the last ten years, you know, including all the Years that Leighton was leader is one in which <clears throat> there's been almost nothing on the ground, um, uh, and, and of course, um, you know the role of the extra parliamentary left is to create a you know is to create a space for um, the NDP in in Canada. Although that's not what they explicitly do. I mean, um, and part of the problem, of course, was the extra parliamentary left in Canada was was sort of almost pathologically nonpartisan. So it, it you know except for some of the unions. There was no there was no explicit support for the NDP, but in just in general, the the political landscape um, of the NDP uh, of, the, of the country was was defined by a, a really weakened social movement, and I think the NDP reflected that. Um, uh, one of the reasons, for example, that I you know that I've heard back from the NDP when I talked to them about it was you know one of the reasons they didn't talk about taxes is that no one else was talking about it, and there's and there's some legitimacy in that. You know, if they'd talked about increasing taxes, you know, the media would have would have lynched them. Um, and w- one of the things that that is critical in in you know producing a progressive politics in Canada is that both branches of, of politics, the parliamentary and extra parliamentary, have to be have to be working in concert. And I think um, uh, you know, had there been a you know, a, a move out there by the unions, uh, in particular, calling for increased taxes and actually spending some money and effort, then the NDP would have been in a position to, to uh, you know, to push on that issue. Murray, and, what do you see would be the impact of now? Now that he's gone and he's passed on, what now would we see as as an impact of that legacy? Well, I think the NDP is now going to have to very rapidly. Um, Re, you know, reinvent itself, and I'm hoping they'll take the opportunity um, to do two things. One is that they're going; they, they absolutely must come up with an economic policy that is, number one, critical of neoliberalism, and number two, provides a you know an appealing vision of what's possible. And the NDP historically has been terrified of talking about the economy because everyone tells them that they don't know anything about it, and you know, and uh, and of course it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think the next four years the, the the number one issue will be the economy. I think capitalism was, is going to continue um, into its into its crisis, and it will get worse. And the NDP absolutely has to talk about the economy, or Stephen Harper will continue to be seen as the best manager, no matter what he does. Secondly, I think the party has to 
becomes something other than just an electoral machine. If it's serious about winning elections, then it has to do the politics differently inside the party. It has to become a movement party. It has to appeal to people on that basis. If it thinks it's going to sort of increase its membership, which it has to do, if it's going to increase its funding as well, then it has to appeal to people beyond, you know, uh, giving them the opportunity to write checks to the party and knock on doors every four years. So I think that's the critical, those two things are going to be critical. And if the party can do that, then then I think uh, we can be optimistic. If, if it doesn't do that, then I'm afraid it will, it, will, um, it will lose the ground that it's gained. Those are very intriguing viewpoints, Murray Dobbin. Thank you for sharing them with us here on Alert. Happy to do so. And Alert spoke with Murray Dobbin, who is a a writer and a social activist. Alert is now reaching Judy Rebick. Judy Rebick is a uh, writer and activist and uh, one of the uh, founding editors of Rabble.ca. So, Judy Rebick, uh, could you maybe give us your insights into how the NDP changed under Jack Layton's leadership? Ah, well, how did the NDP change? Um, I think uh, it's changed changed in a couple of ways. Obviously, the biggest way is that it made a serious effort to understand and appeal to people in Quebec. And so uh, the results is the election that we uh, saw of a majority Quebec caucus. So in this sense, Jack completely transformed the NDP uh, because I think that the you know, one of the fatal flaws of the left in Canada has been the division or the inability of people in English Canada to understand the national aspirations of the Quebecois. And the fact that Jack was able to um, understand Quebec, speak to the Quebecois in a language that they could hear and understand and learn to trust him, I think is probably the biggest change in the NDP that I've seen in my lifetime. And it was pretty unexpected. So uh, I, I, you know, I previous to that, and I and I still, you know, I was quite, I was critical of some of Jack's initiatives because I felt that he was professionalizing the party a little too much. Um, Jack had a real feel for people and for movements, but I felt when he was no longer leader, unfortunately, I, I certainly didn't expect that it would be for this reason, um, the party would be too distant from its grassroots because of the way in which it had been professionalized under his leadership. So those are the two ways I think that he's changed that he changed the party the most. Well, what I think it may be the third way having talked to some uh people that I trust uh, in and around the party is that I think he created much more of a team than was previously there um among the members of parliament. Mm. I think that was another uh, another achievement that he he was very good at at working with teams. Well, this this uh, this reshaping of the uh, the NDP. What would you say has been the overall impact on on Canadian politics and and particularly on the the left itself? I think it's really hard to say that because of what's happened since his death. I mean, the the public reaction to his death has just been astonishing, and I don't think any of us really fully understand it yet. Um, so, for example, uh, we're going into an Ontario election. The NDP's up in the polls, even though they're running a terrible election campaign. Um, they're up in the polls because of the Jack factor, right? 
Uh, so this uh, tremendous outpouring of love and, and affection toward Jack, and, and it seems, it, it, you know, whether or not it'll impact on the NDP, I don't know, and whether his last letter will impact on the NDP, I don't know either. It depends, I guess, who gets elected as leader and how the leadership campaign is conducted. Um, Libby Davis has a very good article in Rapple about that uh, today, or, or right now you can, people could find that. Um, so I think it's really hard to, to know what's going to happen now. Mm. Um, you, know, I wa- you know, before uh, all of this happened, I wasn't very hopeful about the NDP making the changes that it needed to, pre- especially before the election. But I think now it's really hard to say what's going to happen. Um, I think the NDP's had two huge changes, you know, tr- that could be transformational. One being the Quebec caucus, which is obviously playing a key role, and the second being um, the react. Not only Jack's death, which of course is a big blow to the party, but the reaction to his death, which uh, could have a huge impact in the party. I- but I don't know; it could not. Mm. Um, I think it's really hard to tell right now. Okay. Uh, well. I mean, on that note, I would like to thank you very much for for sharing those insights. Uh, It's uh, very intriguing um, when you talk about that professionalization, uh, on the one hand, cutting people off from the grassroots, and yet you see this kind of grassroots response to his death. Yes, because I think the the contradictory factor is that um, the party structurally was moving away from from grassroots accountability, but Jack himself is quite good at it. He's quite good at connecting with people. He's quite good at connecting with movements. I mean, one of the things we saw here in Toronto was the incredible impact he had on so many movements. I mean, I was in the pro-choice movement. He was always there. He was on the picket line in front of the clinic. The gay rights movement, he was always there. He was the first person, uh, you know, the first politician to support um, people who are fighting for better treatment on AIDS, you know, same-sex marriage, on violence against women. I mean, he was on poverty. He was always there. He was an activist, basically at heart. And so he himself was able to connect. But the problem is the restructuring of the party, which became has become much, much more professionalized. And with Brian Tope now, um, you know, be, apparently one of the top, runners for leadership and you know he's very much a backroom boy um and who was very responsible also had a big responsibility for this um it's it's uh, my worry is what happens in the future hmm. so it is contra- it is very contradictory what's happening i think well judy rebick i want to thank you very much for sharing your insights with us here sure. on alert my pleasure that was judy rebick she's a writer and activist and also one of the founding editors of Rabble. Founding Dot publisher. Of Founding publisher of Rabble.ca. Thanks a lot, Judy. Thank you. Bye bye. Alert is now speaking with Sam Gindon. Sam Gindon has uh, worked most of his life with Canadian auto workers and has uh, also taught at York University. And uh, so, Sam Gindon, would you care to uh, share with us your thoughts on Mr. Layton's uh, l- legacy? Uh, how did the NDP change under his uh, leadership, in your estimation? Well, uh, Jack obviously uh, got the party together and uh, made it into a very uh, efficient, 
modern party. Uh, you know, the big thing that Jack did, obviously, was the breakthrough in Quebec. Uh, on the other hand, it you know, it, it seems that what Jack's real goal was to make the NDP into the Liberals, to really replace the Liberals by being a leftish version uh, of the Liberals. And uh, uh, that really raises questions about uh, all kinds of illusions and false promises about accommodating to capitalism as a response to this crisis. Hmm. So then if the NDP, if Jack's legacy has been to essentially turn the NDP into another liberal party, then what what kind of impact do you see that as having on uh, Canadian politics, uh, uh, on the NDP itself, and on the the left of the left, as it were? Well, I guess I guess one of the questions is, uh, what do we make of the response to Jack's death and the outpouring of emotion around it, uh, and will that have any impact on the NDP electorally? Uh, you know, to what extent is that about Jack's integrity and dignity and? Uh, courage, and to what extent does it actually create an opening for the left? And my sense is that it's primarily about the former. It's a, it's a sentimental response to Jack rather than a really re- political response uh, that remains to be seen. So, uh, you know, there are immediate questions in terms of whether the NDP gets some kind of kick up from uh, the recent events, and I think they will in terms of the positive image that... Uh, Jack left, and what happened in Quebec. But the real question is, what what does the NDP do now that it has all these people from Quebec, many of whom come out of the movements, come out of unions? Does it just socialize them into becoming parliamentarians, or does it actually see this as an opportunity for getting them out in the community to mobilize in a different way and start thinking about a party and change and uh, public participation in a new way? And I suspect that that isn't going to happen because that isn't what the NDPs uh, become. Uh, although, you know, maybe there will be a fight over that and that will be interesting. Uh, I don't expect that. The real question for the left isn't, uh, I think, going to be about the NDP. I think we have to recognize that the NDP might be a progressive party to vote for at election time. It might be better than any of the alternatives. Uh, but the reality is that the NDP itself is accommodating to capitalism. Uh, there's all kinds of illusions about what will happen if an NDP government might be elected. We, we, we've seen that in social democratic parties throughout the world as well as provincially in Canada. And the challenge for the left remains the same. How do we build the kind of mass movement uh, that can generate and build the capacities to challenge capitalism rather than to keep hoping that what we're going through is just cyclical or it'll get better if uh, somebody else is replaced, uh, whoever happens to be the conservative uh, politician at that moment. That's the real question for the left. That's what we have to get on and start recognizing we need to do. You know, we've, we've seen more than, you know, it's almost 30 years now that we've had neoliberalism, and then we had this crisis which should have delegitimated capital and finance especially, and instead what's happened is we're still on the defensive. And the lesson is we have to build a socialist presence, an alternative presence in this country. Sam Gindin, thank you very much for sharing those insights with us. Great. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And that was Sam Gindin, who's a, a contributor to Canadian Dimension and a longtime worker with the Canadian Auto Workers. 
An alert is now speaking with Simon Tremblay Pepin. He belong. He's a researcher with Iris, a, a left-wing think tank based in Quebec. So, Simon Tremblay Pepin, welcome to Alert. Hi there. Could you maybe explain a little bit uh, about the uh, the NDP's recent breakthrough in Quebec? Um, yeah, the, the NDP with uh, Jack Layton made uh, quite a surprise with uh, um, almost 60 new uh, uh, member of parliament that were elected here. Uh, we what we saw uh, in this uh, in this election is may- maybe a bit different than what you can think uh, we saw uh, in Quebec because what my analysis of what happened in Quebec uh, at the last election is that. It's not really uh, a fact that we were agreeing that much with the NDP program. It's that it was the last option that was interesting for Quebecers uh, to, to go to, uh, because all the other uh, political options were not interesting anymore to Quebecers. So the, the only one that was left uh, was the NDP. So to what extent was this... Uh the, the the appeal of the Quebec even uh, of the NDP uh, even as sort of a last option attributable to Jack himself. Well, uh, Jack Layton certainly had uh, a very charismatic uh, way of uh, approaching people. He seemed to be uh, human and honest, and that's quite important right now because all the other politicians are so cynical and it's uh, so hard to believe that uh, they're you know acting for the common good or something like this, while with uh, Leighton it was quite obvious that he was. Uh, even though if he was uh, not really uh, well-known in Quebec uh, since, uh, like, uh, for, for, for the previous election, the fact that he had a very, um, a very clean campaign, you know, not attacking uh, at all the other opponents like the, the conservatives were doing, or, uh, you know, being quite the, the good guy in the fight, I think it helped him a lot to uh, arrive in Quebec, and Quebecers were not afraid of the NDP. Well, uh, for, for example, the conservative rhetoric about the NDP being socialist or communist in Quebec was not working, because we know exactly the type of program that uh, Leighton is promoting. In fact, that's what we have at uh, a provincial level. So it's not, it's not that... Um, you know, frightening at all for Quebecers. So uh, uh, on the other side, I think, yes, Jack, Jack Layton, as a personality, helped the NDP to, uh, to make this breakthrough in Quebec. So looking ahead with uh, Jack Layton out of the picture, do you see this effect uh, holding? That's a good question. I think that the probable issue of this... Um, of this campaign for the leadership of the NDP will come out with Tom Mulcair being the leader of the NDP. At least that's a probable option. And Tom Mulcair, I don't think, is a good, uh, is a good way for Quebecer, to, to seduce Quebecer for two main reasons. Uh, the, uh, the people that voted for, for the NDP and the, caucus, the actual caucus members of the NDP coming from Quebec are linked to uh, the left in Quebec, which is almost unknown to Thomas Mulcair. He's not at all coming from this, these circuits and, you know, from this, these networks. And at the, uh, at the other side, 
you have the, the question of sovereignty. Uh, what helped the NDP in Quebec is that people were thinking that they could vote for the NDP, and it was not a hardliner federalist party. While Tamil Care is coming from the uh, Liberal Party of Quebec and is uh, an hardliner federalist, and I think that those two situations will make it quite more difficult for the NDP to maintain its popularity in Quebec. Hmm. Well, with the uh, with the decline of the bloc, uh, I, I'm wondering if uh, sovereignty itself is is it dead or or merely dormant? I, I would personally say it's nor dead nor dormant. Uh, it's uh, quite alive, in fact, but it's uh, it's not the result. The result, the poll results for the bloc are not really uh, that linked to what people think about sovereignty. For example, right now, when you see the poll results for um, uh, the intention, uh, how many people would say yes to a referendum on sovereignty, it's still around 40% as, it's norm, uh, as it is normally uh, in Quebec since like 20 years. So it's, it's not moving that much. What is moving is that the sovereignty um, sector of uh, the political spectrum is totally transforming itself. In Quebec, we have a, 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 like a boom of new parties uh, saying that they are sovereignists and all that. So everybody is a bit running uh, in many directions, and we don't know exactly what will come. Uh, you know, they're they're talking about now. Uh, they're talking about état généraux about sovereignty right now in Quebec. So we don't we don't really know where it's going, but we cannot say it's it's not alive. In fact, it's really alive at this moment. We talk about sovereignty much more those days uh, than we were talking these days than we were talking about sovereignty for the, the last three or four years. Hmm. I just want to maybe like one last point. I mean, you were mentioning Thomas Mulcair earlier. There was a Globe and Mail article uh, that came out recently suggesting he would be the best choice to be leader because of his ability to go head-to-head with uh, Stephen Harper uh, in debate. Um, could you point, in, in terms of Quebec, the, the idea that there is somebody here that, that could uh, actually defeat Stephen Harper? Why, why would such a figure not appeal to uh, Quebec voters if, if Mr. He would, Harper... He would have to make a lot of change in his public image in Quebec. Thomas Mulcair appears to be distant, cold, uh, and calculative, Machiavellian. Uh, you know, he seems to be someone in politics, for power politics, and all that. So he, he needs, uh, it's, it's quite a difference from Jack Layton. Mm. Uh, and he needs really to work on, uh, to work on his image. And on the proposals, uh, his green aspect is a good thing. You know, he's linked to the, the environmental movement and all that, so that, that's a good aspect. But in terms of left-wing politics, he needs to be much more clear. And in terms of sovereignty, he needs to, uh, to give an opening to uh, lots of people. You know, there's about 25% of the people who voted for the NDP that are sovereignists. Hmm. So he needs to tell these people that they are welcome in the NDP, even if the NDP is a federalist party, which everybody knows, but they need to they, they need to to know that they are recognized as uh, pertinent, valid, and all that into the party and 
as voters also. So there, there's a lot of change he, he needs to make. But I'm, I'm totally certain that for the Globe and Mail and for a lot of people in the rest of Canada, and maybe for the membership of the NDP, Mulcair seems to be the, more, the most appropriate option uh, to, to take because they, they will think, well, he's from Quebec, he speaks perfect English, perfect French, uh, and he's, uh, he has some experience in politics and all that. So he seems really the, the perfect candidate. But what seems to be perfect now may turn, may turn out to be quite, uh, quite different in a few years. Hmm. Well, I'm, just before we go, is there, there another candidate that maybe stands out as, as that's potential? That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's the problem. In Quebec, you cannot say that there is uh, really interesting candidates from the actual caucus, not because there is not uh, interesting uh, uh, members of parliament here in Quebec, but they're too young or too inexperienced uh, to, um, to go for this, uh, for this leadership run. For the rest of Canada, what I saw is that you need, uh, well, there may be interesting options, but they, they need to speak French and to speak French quite well. Uh, to be an interesting option now with the, the, the type of caucus they have. But, you know, it's, it's, it's quite strange because you're in front of a membership that is like five persons from Quebec, but a caucus that is like 60 persons from Quebec. So it, it, it'll be a, an interesting uh, leadership race. I'm sure it will be. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Simon Tremblay-Pepin, for um, sharing those insights with uh, Alert. Well, thank you so much, and it has been a pleasure to, to talk with you. Likewise. And that was uh, Simon Tremblay-Pepin. He is with the research group URIS. A punishing regime. Criminal justice in Canada. Look for the September issue of Canadian Dimension on the newsstands. It's a special issue featuring six articles on Canada's criminal justice system. Stephen Harper's approach to crime is not only medieval, it's also costly and ineffective. Pick up this special issue of Canadian Dimension and read about alternative approaches. Also, what's really behind Stephen Harper's love affair with Israel? Freelance journalist Eve Engler has some answers. All this and much more in the September issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. Last week, on the first day of classes, non-academic support staff at McGill University went on strike. Here to talk with us about it is Kevin Whitaker, the president of the McGill University Non-Academic Certified Association. Thanks for speaking with us today, Kevin. Good afternoon. Can you start off by giving us some background? Uh, who is a part of the MUNACA? Why are you on strike, or what are your, some of your demands? Well, first of all, we're comprised of 1,700 members. Uh, those break down into clerical staff, uh, library assistants, and technical staff in laboratories and IT. And uh, what's happened is we've been in negotiations with McGill University since January of 2011, and we've been trying to come to some agreement on key issues such as uh, work premiums, uh, protections to our benefits and pensions, salary grids, and to uh, staffing policies. And over the course of the last nine months, <clears throat> we uh, have hit a wall with these four, specifically these four items, 
and uh, the university is unwilling to move on any of these. Um, what we're looking for in detail, um, the night and weekend premiums in other universities throughout the city, if not the province, uh, these premiums are rated at 25% for Saturdays and 50% for Sundays, and McGill has refused to grant us the same rights as the other universities, not to mention other groups even on McGill, in McGill campus. Um, the other problem are a uh, lack of uh, protections for our benefits and pension plans. Uh, unlike the University of Montreal and UCAM, uh, we have no protections in our collective agreements, which essentially means that when the university decides it needs money, it can step in and reduce our benefits, therefore reducing their input into our benefits and pensions. What, um, what kind of support have you found from, first of all, the student body, and second of all, the faculty at McGill? Well, from the student body, uh, there are several groups that have been uh, supporting us. Uh, SSMU is the uh, major group that's been supporting us on the student front, and uh, they have sent a letter of solidarity to us. It's on their website. As well, they have been actively picketing with us, and in our demonstrations that were carried out last week, they were also at the rallies and the demonstrations speaking out against the university and asking them to deal fairly with us. And uh, the common students walking the line, some of them will pick with us. Uh, some don't understand what the problem is, so uh, our picketers have been explaining it to them. And in most cases, we find support from the student body. Are you asking them not to uh, cross the picket? Uh, we ask them not to, but it's completely up to them. We understand that, of course, they do want to get to class. They do want their education, so uh, we'll respect their decision whether they wish to cross or not, but some do not cross. Okay, what about the faculty's response to this? Well, again, um, we have had about three or four letters so far of support from uh, faculty members, uh, specifically from the arts department. Uh, we've had some good support. We've also actually had a professor show up with her students and pick it with us. So, How long uh, do you see this going on? Like, what do you see as the kind of uh, end result of this? Well, uh, it's hard to tell how long this is going to go on. Uh, what we do know is we have asked for conciliation. So we, we want to move this along as quickly as possible. All we really want is for McGill to come back to the table and to deal with us and provide us with parity with the other universities. Have you been getting support from the faculty union? Uh, from the faculty union, we haven't had any official support, but uh, on other issues, because they also have an issue over the uh, the manner in which the administration has been dipping into our benefits and pensions. So we have been working on that front aside from our negotiations so that we can change the rules at McGill, whereas uh, right now it's merely a consultation. We would like to see a more decision-making body instead of just consultation with the other groups on campus who are paying into these funds. Uh, how disruptive do you think uh, the strike has been so far? Well, <laughs> if today is any indication, I think it's quite disruptive. Um, it's unfortunate for the, for the students, but uh, we have noticed that the libraries are slowing down. If you go to the McGill website, they indicate how they have changed many of their hours of operation. They've had to reduce them, as well as some of the services that have to have been reduced because our staff is no longer there to support them. 
So I think it is uh, quite disruptive, and we really want the university to come back to the table as soon as possible so we can resolve this. Well, hopefully you are successful in your fight. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. And that was Kevin Whitaker, president of the MUNACA on strike at McGill University. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And this year, we're going to have a great collection of music for you. And this week, we're going to start with songs that are anthems, not songs that are known necessarily as anthems, but when you listen to them and when you hear the words and you hear the spirit of the people singing, you'll know exactly what I mean. Recently, Duncan Phillips, that's Utah Phillips's boy, got together with a wonderful singer-producer named Anne McLeod and a bunch of people, and they put together a whole album of songs by Utah. And here we're going to start with Ships Gonna Sail. Working on a ship, may never sail on ships, gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail on, gonna build it anyway. Sojourner Truth said, ain't I a woman now? Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Mother John said, no child labor. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Joe Hill said, don't mourn, organize. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Gene Deb said, well, there's a soul in prison. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship. May never sail on ships, gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail on, gonna build it anyway. Maury Sugar said, sit down, sit down. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Says that Shabba said, viva la huelga. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Malcolm X said, power to the people. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail on. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail on. Gonna build it anyway. Dorothy Day said swords into plowshares. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Judy Berry said no compromise. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Phil Berrigan said no more atom bombs. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Utah Phillips said sing through the hard times. Ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship. May never sail on ships, gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail on, gonna build it anyway. Well, they've all gone and we're still building ships, gonna sail, gonna sail someday. With hand and heart, mind and muscle, ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, May never sail on ships, gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail on, gonna build it anyway. Working on a ship, may never sail 
long ships gonna sail, gonna sail someday. Working on a ship, may never sail, I'm gonna build it anyway. Utah Phillips' masterpiece, Ships Gonna Sail, sung by Anne McLeod and by Utah's son, Duncan Phillips. Wonderful piece of music. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie, Woody Guthrie, probably more than anybody else, is a, the writer of songs that have inspired my life, and I know have inspired the life of a lot of people that I know. The songs are great because he always takes you from somewhere to some place. Woody was uh, pretty clear about what he had to say, and he was pretty blunt about lots of things. Here's Woody Guthrie's classic song, All You Fascists Bound to Lose. Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Well, I'm going to tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. All You Fascists Bound to Lose by songwriter Woodrow Wilson Guthrie, Woody Guthrie, the writer of great songs about working class people. Another great writer is Anne Feeney, who's been uh, kicking around the United States and Canada for the last 25 years singing political songs. And here she is with a great song about the American socialist Eugene V. Debs. Gene Debs. Gene Debs said to hell with war, to hell with all who crave it. When masters rule the world no more, we'll need no wars to save it. Why the ones who own the tools hoard the wealth Make the rules The planet suffers For the powerful few Gene Debs had a lot to say Years ago True today With two million locked away What can we do? There's a better world waiting Work to win it Put an end to poverty To hunger, despair While there is a lower class 
song Gene Debs and that's music is a weapon for this week we'll see you next week with more songs from the working class well that's our show for this week thanks for being with us we'll be here next week at this time if you would like to send us a comment write to alert at canadiandimension.com to hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. 
The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical assistance provided by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.